Hello, you are now listening to the Modem Podcast, where we deconstruct, examine, and discuss deeply technical data networking and information technology topics. Sit back and relax while we fire up Dial D and the 9600 baud modem and connect to the Wildcat BBS. Traffic engineering and QoS on both backbone and access networks is a dark art. Understanding the intricacies of traffic shaping and packet scheduling tends to be a learn enough to get the job done slice of networking, and with good reason. The technologies are complicated, they're heavily driven by vendor support and configuration of these mystic incantations of network sorcery can be daunting and easily misconfigured or done incorrectly. Emerging from this cauldron of packet scheduling is buffer bloat. If you've ever heard about buffer bloat, this will be an informative discussion. Keeping us on track today is Chris Cummings. Chris, how you doing? Uh, I am doing okay. I'm surviving. I'm here and I'm alive. So that's good. And acting as our networking and QoS Sherpa, guiding us along the mountain trail of queuing mechanisms is none other than Dave Tott. Also with us today is Dan Simon. Dan, Dave, Dave, let's start with you. How are you doing today? You're on a boat, man. <laughs> I've been self-isolating off the off of Half Moon Bay's uh, harbor for much since August, and it's got to be kind of you know pleasant and quiet and a really good place to focus and write and work on music and stuff like that. It's also a good place to debug LTE problems. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I can I can definitely imagine. Now you mentioned music and I, I see in the background there, you have a guitar and it's got probably the coolest sticker I've ever seen. It's got, it's got a cool, few cool ones. I'll start with maybe the 1.1.1.1. It's got an ITF sticker. Oh, I see FRR. All right. And some other stuff I don't actually know, but this one is, is unique. I've never seen this. It says this machine kills Vogons. And I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty fantastic. My, my, my core question for this audience is: Do you get both jokes? Yeah, well, first one's Rage Against the Machine, and second one's Hitchhikers, right? <sighs> you get one and a half for that. How, how about <laughs> anybody else? Um, Woody Guthrie had this machine kills fascists on his guitar, and Rage uh, Against the Machine resurrected that meme 20 years ago, which I really liked. But it was Woody Guthrie uh, wandering through the Great Depression that had that. I realized that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Well, I glad. thought that was Rage Against the Machine's thing. That shows my uh, my yeah. lack of knowledge there. Wow. Well, not only that. Well, not only that. Vogons were what, what were Vogons like? What, what was their role? <laughs> Never. Never let them read poetry. <laughs> they were the uh, they were the the bureaucrats. That's right. Yeah, and they're the evil bureaucrats that destroyed the Earth for a hyperspace bypass. And they're really yeah. annoyed that all of all of Earth would, had was still there because the plans have been on file for fifty years in Alpha Centauri, and they should have looked. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Fun fact about Rage Against the Machine: um, back in the early nineties, I saw them, but. The fun fact is that their drummer was a professional skateboarder. And as we maybe don't know, or maybe do, uh, skateboarding is very near and dear to my heart. So fun little tidbit there. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm great. Busy, 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 but always good. 
Excellent. Dan also has some interesting stuff behind him. I see what looks like a toy cat or a Lego cat or something on top of. Oh yeah, that's another one of my kids made. Four hundred books. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of the things my kid made stashed up top there to keep it, and lots of good networking books. Yes, and a bunch of other things, university textbooks, I guess. Um, okay. Yeah. I love it. I still like paper books because if I read on my phone or on my laptop, I find I'm on Slack or I'm on something else. So a paper book on a couch by myself means I actually focus on something. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's very, very true. I, I need a paper book. I can't be distracted. I can't read on screens either, mm -hmm. but. Yeah, hey, the buffer <laughs> book. Looks like, so for the audience that's listening, uh, the uh, uh, Dan is holding up the. Uh, I'm sorry, Dave is holding up the Buffer Bloat and Beyond book. So I didn't even know that existed. Actually, I might go buy that. It's not only a, it's not only a free download. The university that published this is making it available to for free. And if you ask the, the this is just just to give some praise to one of the big people in the Buffer Bloat movement. Toki is the first PhD student in history to ever get every single line of code he wrote for all of his papers accepted in the Linux kernel before he graduated. Wow. So wow. Well, that well is well worth reading that book. <laughs> that is, that is quite the accomplishment. Yeah. We'll make sure to add a link to the buffer bullet and beyond uh, book in the show notes here. So if you're listening, make sure to check those out. We'll put a link there. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Cool. I'm glad so, I could do a book tour. <laughs> absolutely. Don't get to do that much nowadays. Let's let's dive in. Let's dive in. There's 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 a lot here to unpack um, because, you know, buffer bloat and the, the, the queuing mechanisms that were sort of born out of it are deep, deep topics. Um, and I think that we're going to we're going to be pressing to get uh, to get even the surface scratched in, in, in an hour here. And I suspect that we'll be probably doing more than one of these. So. Um, my, my knowledge of this uh, is, it, you know, is a little bit from the other side because um, I, mo I work mostly with large um, carrier devices, which, you know, when you have a, a, a longer network, you typically need more buffer for different reasons. But this, this sort of addresses a problem that's, I'm guessing, to be a lot more prevalent than that, right? Because it's end devices, it's CPEs. And that problem is that there's too much buffer in some of these access devices that can cause latency and other problems. Or have I totally butchered that? I, I guess I, it's because this is a recorded podcast, me giving you two thumbs up doesn't help. So two thumbs up. <laughs> there's two thumbs up there. Um, a, a slightly broader definition of that is that we typically have variable length pipes. Uh, and variable width pipes in Wi-Fi and LTE, and a fixed. You do need some buffering in order to keep the flow going, but that buffering number needs to change depending on how much bandwidth is available to you at that point. So those two technologies suffer from buffer bloat enormously, and also does most of our ISP uplinks, etc. Um, so. I don't know where I should start uh, on this because there's an awful lot of literature published, including the book I referenced earlier. Um, I have a couple really great demos using water as a uh, example. Um, those are also out there. Um, where would you? You talked about this in the context of QoS as well. Um, what? How do? You, have you? Do you think you've experienced buffer bloat in your day? 
I am absolutely sure that I have. And and so let's let's describe a, a scenario for that the listeners will probably be familiar with, and then we can build on that. So it, most route most pieces of routing equipment, and, and a, a lot of our listeners are going to be um, you know networking professionals, service provider folks, uh, maybe some enterprise and sysadmin. Uh, uh, people as well. And so I think this is going to be something that they're uh, a little bit more familiar with. So you have the notion of best effort, um, which is the default behavior in most cases, as far as queuing goes on a, on a large network device or a, you know, a, you know, a branch router or whatever. And the way that that operates is, you know, router forwards all packets it receives to the best of its ability. The router forwards a packet as soon as it can perform the table lookup that's necessary to determine where it needs to go or the egress interface for that given packet. If the router isn't able to send that packet immediately, it has to get queued. So that queuing happens only when it needs to. If the queue is full, the packet gets dropped. So that's when you'll start to see packet loss and other issues like that. Um, the packets in a default behavior uh, device are typically processed like a FIFO pipe. So first, first in, first out, first come, first served, however you want to describe that. And that is sort of best effort queuing or best effort forwarding in an, in a nutshell. That's not always the right way to do things, right? Certainly not. No. Can I go take a, take a, a minor step back? I'm going to give you another link to my APNIC talk. Normally I have a pipe handy. Okay. Right. Today I just have an audio cable. And if you hold that, if you think of distance from like from my boat to you, where are you based by the way? I am in the middle of Illinois. So from, from California, Illinois, there's a whole bunch of time and a whole bunch of packets can fit in the pipe between you and me. And that's good. But they tend to arrive in bursts, and that's what you have buffers for. Okay? A little buffering is good. Good queue is good. But you don't need to have more than you need to sustain the length. It's, they're shock absorbers. When we, did the, when we discovered that buffer flow was becoming a problem, um, we discovered that people thought that packet loss was bad. No. Packet loss is good. Packet loss is essential for the Internet's correct operation. Because after it transits between here and Illinois, it hits that little buffer. Until it gets a packet loss, it doesn't know how long it is between here and Illinois. It gets that packet loss, that signal goes back, it cuts the rate down, and then you're filling the pipe and not the queue. The shorter the queue you can have, the more of the pipe you can fill. And um, so I, one of my first things is packet loss is good. You want to lose packets. Latency sucks. Um, so go One ahead. thing I found trying to sure. explain this to people too is you all kind of probably used an internet connection that's relatively busy and it's fine. It gets to 90% and it falls off a cliff. Usually that's bad buffering. Like that, that's a, a deep queue that just that whole like latency curve spikes up enormously. That's, that's the, like, that, that is the best example of feeling bad buffering. And the first time I ran into this was with, uh, you know, I was, if I remember correctly, it was like a circuit upgrade we were doing and I was pretty green. Well, maybe I still am, but uh, I was pretty green at things. And, uh, the, the symptoms that presented themselves were, um, we were doing a, a, basically an iperf test across this link to, to validate that it was working fine. And we also had a ping going across link. So what happened was as soon as we were filling up that pipe, you know, it was fine. But then our pings would just start going, you know, 40 milliseconds, 
40 milliseconds, a hundred, a thousand, 4,000 milliseconds, and then just start timing out. And it was just like, Whoa, like, you know, my first thought was like, what is the provider doing? Like, why are they like holding on to these packets? You know what? And, and, and just like you said, packet loss is a good thing. And so what was happening was, you know, those packets, instead of getting dropped so that, you know, if you're doing a, a TCP based traffic flow, Instead of dropping those so the TCP knows, okay, well, I'm overloading stuff. Nope, it just holds on to them and keeps sending them, and then it just compounded. And that was very eye-opening for me the first time I saw this. Well, good. I hope that more and more people really get this. Um, it, I've been at this for 10 years, and do you want a little history? Not. Yeah, um, all right. absolutely. I, I was living in Nicaragua at the time as part of the One Laptop Per Child project and trying to build a greenfield mesh network between several schools and myself. And the network worked great with wireless G. And then I said, aha, I'm gonna switch to wireless N and get everybody five times more bandwidth. And I deployed that and it worked pretty good until it rained, which is about two months in Nicaragua. And uh, my the, the, the signal strength declined as, as per the models. Okay, but the bandwidth and the bandwidth dropped as per the models, but the buffering stayed the same. So I actually ended up with stuff that had over 30 seconds of delay built into it, wow. which is about 28 seconds longer than our network protocols uh, were. I did not understand this at the time. Okay, it wasn't until I came back to the U.S. that I reproduced Jim Geddes' experiments and said, aha. If I fix this, I can go back and retire in Nicaragua and drink boat drinks and go surfing every day. And I figured it would take a year. <laughs> it's 10 years later. Um, so the overbuffering problem is really, I, th I thought it was just a Nicaraguan thing. It's worldwide. It's really bad in, in, in Central America and in other parts of the third world. But it has been getting better with all the algorithms that we developed to, uh, to combat this problem. Because the principle unknown is that, again, when the, my weather changed, um, my signal strength declined, my bandwidth declined, and I needed to somehow dynamically adjust the buffer size to be the right value for that link. And... Uh, it wasn't until the development of an algorithm called Coddle and it's uh, six, it's super duper version called FQ Coddle that we came up with an answer for dynamically adjusting the link that had evaded all the theorists for over 30 years. And uh, I'm very happy that that happened. Um, and I'm kind of hoping that kind of segues into talking about how we go about dynamically adjusting buffering and so on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do want to I do want to make one point here, and I think that you you've illustrated it a little bit in talking about the the experience that you had when you first saw the behavior on your wireless links, and I and I think that you know that folks that maybe haven't heard of this before haven't really experienced um, a wireless ISP or using wireless backhaul because this is very widely discussed in the WISP community for a lot of these same reasons, because the links are not fixed per se. They're much more subject to environmental changes, unlike a, a you know, buried fiber, you know, with a amplification yeah. chain along it. Right. So this kind of thing is really, really prevalent in the WISP community and the wireless backhaul space. 
Um, But yeah, I just wanted to make that point real quick because there may be folks that have said, I've never heard of this. Why is this a thing or whatever? But that, so that's where I think it really gets the most attention, at least from my point of view. Well, it hit me where I hurt. I had to leave the country, you know, and then come fix it for the whole world. And then I plan to retire again down there. And there was near revolution. So I couldn't go back. Long story. Um, the, uh, <laughs> I, I, I do really want to stress though, that this is happening on all forms of networks because we've got it wrong. Um, another case, for example, your ISP sells you a 20 megabit downlink and a four megabit uplink, and they hold the buffer size size for a gigabit and a 35 megabit uplink. So your internet connection gets is gets horrifically, I mean, hundreds of milliseconds, seconds worth of buffering in it. And most of the people using cable and DSL have, are really suffering from this. And they just don't know that when their system goes, etc. Um, that's really usually a sign of this thing called buffer blow, which we thoroughly fixed. And you just got to upgrade your router, nag your ISP to fix it. Um, so yes, it's very noticeable for WISPs. And I'm glad that WISPs have noticed it and have been deploying fixes rapidly. And uh, Dan, I believe Dan is in that market, actually. How, how are things over there, man? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, basically well, a part of what we do, right, is is applying some of these techniques, FQGoggle and, and other things like that to solve the buffer boat problem in, in Wi-Fi networks. Well, fixed wireless networks, so like residential internet delivery primarily, but honestly, it applies everywhere. Like it's, it, we talk about where the bottleneck link is, the bottleneck is, the bottleneck is often where the plan is enforced. It may not actually be in the equipment itself. It's like wherever we're a 20 meg plan, I'm enforcing 20 meg. And if that enforcement's done poorly with a really deep FIFO, then you get crappy experience under load. Cool. So, um, so yeah, the bottleneck can be almost anywhere. That gets us to the shaping topic. You're right. This is going to be, end up being a complicated thing for just the <laughs> podcast. I need pictures <laughs> of circles so, and arrows and go ahead. So, so, so we talked about then what the issue is. I think that's pretty clear. And we've mentioned FQ Coddle. So, so Dave, you're obviously a little bit of a part of that. I've heard. <laughs> so how about, how about maybe you talk about FQ Coddle a bit and explain, you know, how it solves that. Cause you know, I, I, I honestly do not understand a lot of, of how this works. And so I hear this and I just go, wow, like there, is there some control plane protocol that sits in between and, you know, dynamically discovers stuff? Like there's just a million ways my brain goes off of like how yeah. to solve this. But the, the, the I would clap. love to hear it from the horse's mouth here. Well, okay. I'm not a horse, but a uh, horse. I could get horse after talking about this for so many years. Um, so when I left Nicaragua, um, Prior to that, I'd used a shaping technology called Wonder Shaper, um, which basically used an algorithm called SFQ, Stochastic Fair Queuing. And Fair Queuing, to me, up until that point, was the answer uh, for having multiple flows from multiple places. So like your big download got one queue and your VoIP call got another queue and the two were really statistically beautifully multiplexed. And that's all you needed. The thing was, is that SFQ had more or less stopped working for me because underneath that was all these enormous additional buffering that had been built into the system that they nobody had bothered to tell us. The device drivers and the firmware was everywhere. So I walked into this thing that Jim Geddes had put together saying, ah, fair queuing is the answer. And 
everybody else, and I mean absolutely everybody else, Van Jacobson, everybody else thought active queue management was the answer. Now, what active queue management attempts to do is attempts to notice the size of the queue getting too big or oscillating too rapidly, and it shoots at a couple packets trying to get um, uh, get the queue size down to some finite number. If it if the queue is growing too much, it shoots more packets. If it's shrinking too much, it shoots it starts shooting less packets. But the goal is to keep at 100 utilization with a reasonable queue size. Now, the active queue management problem was recognized in 1992 as being a real problem. But the one algorithm that was developed uh, by Van Jacobsen, Red, had a couple really major flaws. It was a wonderful research tool for hundreds and hundreds of papers all attempting to fix Red. And red is deployed in most switches. And yes, you can use it. And if you can figure out how to configure it, please tell me. And uh, I'll gladly tell people uh, how to make it work. Um, but it, it, active queue management has a couple really good advantages in that it's simpler. You just keep hammering at the at packets in the queue as hard as you can until the queue size gets smaller. Uh, and you do that statistically and you're able to eventually win. But there's no distinction between different kinds of flows, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. If it's encrypted traffic, you can't look at it for fair code anyway. Um, so you just got to keep hammering at it. So anyway, I walked into there saying fair queuing is the answer. The whole universe said that no active queue management is the answer. And here's all the research papers showing how we can't do it. And, um, and I sat down myself and reproduced all the research that had been done to date on everything because I was mad. This thing had kicked me out of my country. <laughs> I was really mad, dedicated, because I was going to go back. And uh, and then I got a chance to work with some of the really great originals in the internet. Um, Van and, and Kathy Nichols and Vent and Jim and Eric Raymond and Fred Baker and God, just all these amazing people popped out of the woodworker, you know, so most of us would be in walkers now. I'm pretty. I'm getting pretty gray myself. But uh, they popped up to help. Kleinrock popped up to help. So I, I managed to capture 30 years of Q theory and the active Q management stuff and the fair queuing stuff and working with Eric Dumasay in particular and the fair queuing stuff. And meanwhile, Van Jacobson, uh, Kathy Nichols had convinced him, they're married, that Red was wrong. This is one of those possible marriage-ending researching things, you know. Uh, but Kathy is a very distinguished scientist, and she walked in with a stack of paper and say, "Honey, we gotta talk." <laughs> I'm making some of this up about Red, and she proved to him really thoroughly that Red's uh, using using of averages, etc., was really the wrong approach to queue management. And then she came up with. Uh, more than one of the core ideas in the new Cottle algorithm. So Vanna developed Red in 92. Uh, the buffer blow thing got coined in 2010. And uh, Kathy and Van came up with a new way of controlling, doing active queue management that actually was tuned appropriately to how TCP and TCP-friendly transports were developed. And they called it Cottle. And we all, all of us old-timers, swore together that there was no way in hell we were going to patent this, and we needed to give it away. And we worked really, really hard to make sure it, 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 it was unpatented. And got it to a, they got it to a dead tree publication, and 
It was Eureka, nine months worth of really intensive research, 30 year old problem solved. I could go home. And uh, so the paper came out. I started bouncing up and down when Kathy gave it halfway through. I was like, yes, this is the answer. This is the answer. And uh, and I sat down with Eric Dumasay, and about a week went by. This is really exciting to me. If you look back at the history of this, it was one of the most exciting weeks of my life. It's on the Coddle mailing list. And boom, from the research paper, the NS2 model, to Linux development, to testing, into the Linux mainline in one week in May of uh, 2012. And wow. then I went, Wait, it went into Linux mainline in one week? One week, 16 wow. years of development <laughs> written from scratch from a research paper. Probably the most, it was great. It was really, it was the answer. We had a couple other answers along the way, like by Q limits, BQL, which is really important too. But wow, Coddle worked. And since I hadn't pulled that many all nighters in a decade or two, I went to sleep for a week or two. And during all this time, I had been working on a combination of fair queuing and AQM. I'll explain why that, that's important with Eric Dumasay. And we'd hit a couple dead ends and we were using um, SFQ plus RED. We knew RED didn't work all that well, but the core idea was good. And we knew that SFQ was probably a good idea. And there, so I went to sleep. And then one, um, one night at four o'clock in the morning, I got an email from Eric Dumasay with a patch. And he says, Dave, you're not like this. And that solved all the rest of the problems, queuing problems, buffer blue problems that I thought that the internet had then. It's a glorious day. Why do you need to, I could tell more of that backstory, but that one also, I think it took less than a week to get into the kernel. We were testing with a uh, embedded, home embedded router called Sarawar at the time. It may have taken a little longer than a week. Boom, boom. Now I just have to convince several billion people and billion router manufacturers to go upgrade. Now I, I've seen I've seen this in a, a a lot. Well, everything's Linux based nowadays. Not everything, but like a lot of stuff is Linux based. And so, over the however long you know last couple of years that I've been hearing about this, I've seen it popping up in more and more platforms that you know that have that sort of front line um, need for it. So you know, Dan has a platform. That's that actually your platform is the first one that I ever saw commercially that that supported it. I think it's going into router OS seven on the Microtik side. Um, it, it, it's available, you know, vanilla Linux distributions, obviously, because you got it mainlined into the kernel. So, I mean, it, my guess is it's just going to start to spread uh, very rapidly from here. It's also an iOS and OS X. It's the default queuing mechanism there. All your packets belong to me and my very little. <laughs> it is oh, I wish I could say that. It is sometimes a really terrifying responsibility, certainly given the short development time. I spent the first year or two panically looking at over all over our assumptions. Uh, and I did make two mistakes that I'm trying to correct um, today. Um, which I might be able to get to in the course of this conversation. But I wanted to talk about the huge benefit that FQCoddle brought. It's also the default QDisk in all the main, on all the mainline Linux distributions, and it's also in four Wi-Fi chipsets. Uh, so we went from potentially seconds upon seconds of queuing for most traffic to zero. Zero. Okay, one time around the Earth is 240 uh, 
ms, not microseconds, milliseconds. Zero. We were observing seconds. And uh, so we got it to zero for most traffic, DNS, send packets. Oh, most of our traffic was remarkably sparse. And so almost absolutely every... We, we improved praise load times by several orders of magnitude. There's pictures and demos of all, of all this wonderful. This never happens in a guy's career, ever. I just, you just don't ever, 3% a year is all you ever aim for. So, wow, we had, had this thing working. So the active queue management tries really hard to eventually squeeze the queue to five milliseconds, no matter the distance, no matter the bandwidth, just five not the bandwidth to belay product, not other stuff that we've had before. Five milliseconds, no matter what the actual outgoing bandwidth is. Brilliant algorithm. Thank you, Kathy and Van, for spending their time to invest and give it away. The fair queuing part means that all other non-queue billing traffic, zero. <laughs> um, and the statistical multiplexing that you get by doing the fair queuing part means that all of your flows fate share. So that um, if you have 10 big flows, they're all mixed together. And that means if you start shooting at them, they all kind of slow down uh, much more smoothly. And uh, it has another major feature called head drop, which is another major innovation, which helps for video conferencing traffic uh, in particular. And um, totally hit it out of the park in those couple weeks. And ever since then, it's been slowly convincing people to turn it on. Are you guys running Linux yourselves? What are you guys running on? I am. Uh, I'm currently running on Mac OS. All right. Well, there's a netstat command that can show you your FQ call statistics for OS X. And uh, the only place we haven't found it is in Windows. And the biggest deployment problem is that router manufacturers tend to lag five to 10 years behind the Linux kernel mainline. So that despite the fact that we won so big then, we had a couple other major hurdles to to cover. Um, yeah, that kind of embedded development tends to be really slow. And then I think even beyond that, there's the uh, middle box lag, right? So you have your you have your router manufacturers, and then you've got the middle boxes like the UTMs and other firewall devices that are even potentially um, a step behind that as well in features and and speeds and things like that and security the, the state of the home router market is terrifying to me um one of our core development principles was we were prototyping on openwrt which does track cvs and linux closely and thank god for that uh, there's been so many cvs against so many other things that i i don't know how anyone can sleep comfortably buying a router off the shelf from anybody um, it really is just a terrible market. Um, there's other third-party firmwares that also very quickly adopted FQCODL, and uh, we ended up coming up with something that helped the ISPs called Cake, which we'll get to a little bit later. But before that, we created this thing called SQM, which FQCODL is a critical component of. Um, do you want me to get to that, or shall I? Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh Unless we want to, is there any um, terminology that we should define beforehand or go a little bit deeper in? What do you think, Chris and Dan? So you did mention SQM. Uh, well, you actually, you, you mentioned SFQ. Was that, so you want to define SQM then? Okay. So SFQ was stochastic fair queuing. It was very good. DRR, 
was what FQ Coddles actually derive from. It's better. That's deficit round robin. There's a lot of implementations of DRR, for, for example, in your typical enterprise switch. Um, they're really good, except that they only work on the uh, TOS header, typically, or the DSCP header. And that's not terribly helpful if you have thousands of different flows. So one of the biggest complaints about fair, about fair queuing in general is it requires the full uh, IP header, the full five tuple, and calculating that hash takes a, a measurable amount of time for some people, for some hardware anyway. Um, it's a little off topic. Let's see here, FQ, uh, coddle is just short for the word coddle. Um, is, is, is in, we, we coddle the packets. Um, fair queuing, what does that truly mean to, to you in the audience, if you'd like to define it? Um, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you to define that? Here? Well, it's good to have the blank looks because I, I do think that so few people truly understand fair queuing. And to me, it's 97% of the of the solution to buffer bloat is, is more statistical multiplexing in general, but fair queuing in, in this case particularly. Fair queuing means you t in this case... Um, it's really a generalized processor scheduling is another word for it. Almost all of our CPU schedulers use some form of fair queuing. They allocate a slice of time to this guy, a slice of time to this process, a slice of time to this process, a slice of time to this process. So that time slicing thing has been built into our operating systems forever, but it was not applied to packets all that much because, well, cynically, it solves too many problems and you won't want to buy an upgrade. So, and in the case of fair queuing, as we did it in SFQ, et cetera, we used the full five tuple of the IP header, source address, destination address, source port, destination port, and protocol. Um, and that gives us a hash. And then uh, we take that hash and we slice it down into a number of queues that's manageable. Uh, we determine via kind of an ad hoc method that 1024 queues works really well for the edge and seems to be scaling up pretty well. Um, so just 1024 virtual queues. Um, taken from that hash. What other words are worth defining here? I don't know. My last name means star or planet in Estonian. Um, <laughs> it might be worthwhile just to mention like how, how Caudle actually works, like measuring the sojourn time oh. and stuff like that. Yeah, that's, a lot of people that dig AQMs really dig this. So again, AQM is such a wonderfully active field of research. You'll get a new paper every year from a new student using a new method that doesn't work every year. I, mean, I have read so many papers about some things that don't work or just a you know, subdomain. Coddle's in, innate brilliance comes from Q theory. If I can plug more books, uh, Leonard Kleinrock's Introduction to Queuing Systems Volume 1 is selling for $500 on eBay. Um, you can still get copies of volume one and two. Every computer scientist and engineer in networking should have read those books. There'll be a quiz after. Um, so when we talk about Q theory, it really blew my mind that during the COVID crisis, um, that the words, the phrase Q theory got, never got raised. And Q theory is all about a different depart, a different arrival rate uh, relative to your departure rate. Uh, and in this case, in COVID, you're talking about figuring out how to get your arrival rate down to the number of hospital beds, the number of people that can leave the hospital. Q theory 101, 100 years with stuff. Never heard the word Q theory for the whole COVID crisis. It's, ah, COVID leverages a pretty great Q theory. On a packet arrival to a queue, it timestamps it, okay? 
Next one gets timestamp. Next one gets timestamp. Next one gets timestamp. Now bursts, cues are shock absorbers. Bursts are part of, of how life works. So you need to be able to absorb a burst for a little while. But you want to measure what the departure departure rate actually is. So if you have, uh, trying to come up with a decent example for radio. This is this is uh, the shadow knows the Q theorist knows. Um, We've got Lamont Cranston here, everyone. <laughs> the, the shadow. The, the, the Q theorist goes. So we've got. So down it down here we've got a timestamp. Time one, time two, time three, time four, time six, time seven, time eight, time ten. We got ten packets in the queue, and the first one departs. The second one departs, but two more arrive at the tail of the queue. The third one departs, and we can see this slope of the curve saying, well, our departure rate is getting slower than our arrival rate. And if we notice that a packet has lived too long in the queue, 100 milliseconds is, is the default, and we say, aha, we need to signal to the other side that the queue is too big. And signal, drop that packet or mark it, and the other side will ultimately know that. But unlike all the other AQMs, it notices that at the head of the queue. So almost always you have more packets stored up behind it. So the, the next packet out that the transfer protocol notices, oh darn, I, I missed a packet here, but I um, missed a packet. So it asks for a retransmit, it's called in TCP a fast retransmit, but it also lowers the rate. So you stop filling up the queue so much. Coddle also, because it doesn't know the actual bandwidth of the link, it gradually decreases the interval at which it notices congestion. So it starts at 100 milliseconds, then uh, inverse square root 82, I think it is. It gradually cuts it down to where it tries to get to where there's only 5 milliseconds of queuing while still observing bursts. If all of a sudden that queue empties, it stops dropping packets and starts to reset. doesn't reset immediately, but it's just there to, it's a shock absorber. That's, that's the best way I can think of describing it. Um, but the innovation of actually looking at the timestamp, it was huge. And the reason why they didn't do that in red is that at the time, getting a timestamp in the late 80s on a 16-bit processor that was forwarding packets was a really expensive operation. And I, I remember one time Kathy asking me, so just how expensive is getting a timestamp nowadays? She didn't give me any context. <laughs> and I said, uh, it's, it's one o'clock. Um, you need it to be synchronized? She said, no. And then like four months later, Coddle came out. Said, Boom. So we have a single clock operation that can timestamp a packet. And uh, that was a fundamental innovation in there. The same principle got applied to a later AQM called Pi. Uh, which basically operates uh, somewhat differently, but it's timestamps were really, really fast. Timestamps were a really key innovation. So one thing that you said there that uh, is important is that, you know, it notices these things and we should call out the fact that you're talking about the, the queuing mechanisms, the code is actually doing this work. Now, one of the things that is very daunting about, any packet scheduling, QoS, traffic engineering, any of this packet mangling stuff is that there's, it's usually heavyweight in, in the form of configuration and understanding like timers and, you know, other, uh, other elements of what the traffic is going to look like. Now, FQ Coddle and Cake is uh, by the definitions on the Buffer Bullet website is a no knobs protocol. So it's like, I mean, I'm quoting your, your page here. It was designed to just work. And so there's, 
it does this all of this heavy lifting for you. And and because we have more computational power now, it's able to do that really efficiently. Whereas, like you said before, just a timestamp back, you know, back in the day was you know basically a non-starter because it was too computationally expensive. So where does that timestamp come from? Is that now like looking into the actual like TCP timestamps in the packet or is that the timestamp that is basically put onto the packet when it enters the queue? It's the timestamp that is put on the packet when it enters the queue. There's no additional, all protocols, you know, not just TCP, but WebRTC, UDP, any protocol just gets this timestamp. And then if it's over, if it starts going over the target interval, um, stuff starts getting dropped. Um, and because of how uh, how it statistically multiplexes the dropping stuff, we end up going back to filling the pipe again with, with bursts and so on, um, so that we're filling the pipe and not the queue. And that's how we got to five milliseconds as a typical number at almost any RTT um, round trip time. So, good. And that's five milliseconds that the basically that the queue, the buffer is going to add at its worst case. No, worst case is much worse. And worst case can actually be enormous. You're, uh, there's something on the other side could be ignoring you. And that's the part why the fair queue, if you do a ping flood, what happens? If you do a ping flood on any network, what happens? It's pretty bad, usually. Um, so this is another reason why the fair queuing component was good. One bad actor, or even a couple hundred bad actors, cannot just completely disable your network. With an AQM or a FIFO, pure AQM, a bad guy, a bad app, I got a story to tell. A bad guy, a bad actor cannot disable your network without trying fairly hard, you know? So can I tell a, a side story as to, as to one of the things we did? So we were also Please working, do. Okay, we were also working in the Sarawak project too. On the, remember IPv6 launch day? Um, yes, very well. <laughs> we were trying really hard to make OpenWRT in particular and Linux in general actually fully IPv6 compliant with all the standards. So we wrote a new DHCPv6 client. I didn't. And uh, that went in there. And we deployed FQCODL and SQM and stuff like that pretty widely across, across the entire OpenWRT user base. And then 53 days later, we got some calls back from some people on the cable business saying, you know, uh, uh, you're flooding our DHCP server with a whole bunch of requests. Do you have any idea what it was? And we flipped the router off. Nope, don't see a problem. 53 more days would go by. Hey, you, you really, are you looking at this? So it turned out that there was a 32-bit counter in the DHCP client that flipped over and flooded completely flooded the upstream link with, with the HCP requests, DHCP 6 requests. And we never saw it because the fair queuing component just made that completely invisible. <laughs> Dropped a ton of packets. We never, ever saw it until we did some packet traces after. Again, the fact that it took that long to find um, was one of the reasons why I started working on accelerated clock systems where we could do stuff. I like to be able to test something that will last for years so being able to do that in less time is good anyway so fair queuing um, is an enormous protection against simple-minded attacks and simple uh, and basic bugs like that um so big win i'm kind of off track i think no no this is all great stuff because it helps to illustrate the 
you know, how useful this queuing actually is, right? So being able to say, oh, I flooded this and I never even noticed because, you know, our queuing mechanism took care of it is akin to me saying, if you deploy V6 right, the user never even knows, right? Which I, I never shut up about that. So you, 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 hit, the, you hit the V6 button there. <laughs> it's just like, that's my button. I was very happy to say it. I was very happy we made it work in time for launch day. I, uh, I had also been a big advocate of V6, um, and uh, and and knowing this five to ten year lag for commercial products, I had a certain uh, father of the internet nag me a lot to make sure it worked in some bleeding edge router distribution, and I'm really glad that I could thank him and my team could thank him. Uh, for driving us to make V6 actually work on some home routers by the launch day. Uh, these days, I write, I write Vent, and I say, "Dear Dad, what do I do now?" Um, and it was really nice to do that. But I don't not yeah okay. Let's keep uh, let's the, the DOS example you gave is is interesting too. But there's kind of like that the real life personal or like individual example of that is having your upstream video like we're doing now not get like dosed by netflix or anything else because same thing the flow isolation is protecting those other those more smaller interactive flows from getting hammered that's very much true but the shorter queues help a lot too um it's not terribly well known but um I, i'm under the impression that a goodly portion of netflix's engineers actually use the even route router uh at home I really wish they'd tell their customers that because <laughs> uh, BSD is still lagging quite a bit behind uh, Linux at this point, and uh, Netflix is still a problem. Uh, YouTube is using BBR, which is pretty cool, um, but uh, that's, that's, that's way off topic now. Let's we'll stay on home routers and cake and FQCoddle and SQM. Yes? All right, so the big place where we ran into trouble. So FQCoddle is the default in just about all of Linux today. It runs beautifully at line rate with another very important technology called BQL. Now, I've been after, like, UBNT uh, adopted FQCoddle early, and uh, I've been, we've been after Microtik for six years, eight years to get it. So it just went in their beta kernels. The thing is, it looks to me like it was a checkbox item for them. They missed BQL entirely. And the, the byte queue limits facility, which you can look network queue limits, look it up on LWN, is utterly critical. It's a really lightweight interrupt time for the device driver thing that makes sure you only have enough queuing on the Ethernet stack to, uh, to, to service one interrupt. And as best as I can tell, Microtech missed that. So, yay, they have FQCuddle, but it can't run at line rate at anywhere near the low latency, it can be achieved with anything else. Now, I'm hoping I'm proven wrong. If there's anybody out there that can tell me there's BQL and all Microtech stuff, that'd be great. Yeah, if, if users know the answer to that, you know, hit us up, and I would be I would be very interested in knowing. Now, we we did we just did a podcast on the recent updates to Router OS seven, which is still really beta. So it's possible if it's not in the newest that it will get added along the path. Um, that remains to be seen. Eight years sure. just to get FQCoddle there, and they completely... So, again, and, and Cake's in there, too, which I'm happy about. And that kind of solves another problem. But running at line rate with zero, almost zero CPU cost at, the, at tens or hundreds of gigabits requires the BQL subsystem be enabled for that particular device if it's Ethernet. Grump. 
Um, Wi-Fi is different. I can talk about that later. But um, anyway, Microtech, thank you. Fix the rest, please. I'd like... I, yeah, okay, I'm better now. Um, so... Viculimus versus shaping. Okay. So as I said, we can run FQCon on just about absolutely anything that's really lightweight, except that ISPs in particular tend to sell you subscriber bandwidth. That's that's their differentiator. So you buy a hundred megabit link that's hundred megabit down, ten megabits up if you're lucky, right? That's not a natural speed for the internet. It's a natural speed for the DOCSIS system or a DSL system in part for signal management reasons. Um, there's actually a legitimate reason for DSL and DOCSIS to have this asymmetry. Um, but that's not something that any of the other devices that we make, Ethernet uh, in particular, doesn't have that asymmetry. So we end up having to use software rate shaping on top of the FQCRADL algorithm or FQ pi or cake. There's three of them that are all kind of similar. Um, and it turns out that software rate shaping is really computationally expensive. A uh, box built in 1989, like the, the, the MIPS routers I used. I got one here that you can't see. This is a Deck Gear 3700. You know, uh, it's got a MIPS CPU designed in 1989. And this can rate shape to about 70 megabits. Um, it can run FQCODL up to about 300, and it can run a FIFO up to about 310. Um, but the software rate shaping we needed in order to be compatible with ISPs to get rid of the ISPs buffer bloat proved to be computationally expensive. And um, I really hate it when people conflate, oh, FQCODL leads CPU. No, it doesn't. It's having to cope with ISPs that want to give you asymmetric bandwidth. If you're buying fiber at 100 megabits each way, that's line rate, zero, almost zero CPU impact. Gigabit, each way, honestly, you kind of need a, a, an x86 box for that, but you don't need a software shaper. Um, and if I was there any one thing that I've had, I would really like see the people up, upgrade to fiber. I've had a long history with Doxis that has uh, caused a lot of loss here and, um, and so on. But going back to the software rate shaping component, Awesome. So just re just real quick for the listeners, he's pulling out a router for every single thing that he's saying here. He has apparently an endless supply of routers in front of him. On my boat. I am actually working on a set of simulations today on a certain device um, that I can actually show because it's now it's been out for a while, but I'm not going to show it anyway. I'm working. Uh, I, my client list is pretty quiet, so I'm working on improving uh, the behavior of a couple Wi-Fi and LTE devices this year, I hope, and uh, so on. But anyway, run out, get yourself, go to Open Word site, get yourself a cheap router. If you're running at under 50 megabits um, total, great. Something that costs you $10 from a junk shop will approve there. Um, there's lots of off-the-shelf stuff, up to about two, 300 megabits we can get off-the-shelf FQCONL, SQM implementations. And above that, you got to go to a little x86 box, 200 bucks. And your, your network just gets infinitely better for if you're sharing more than one person at home. Uh, so, go ahead. so maybe if we could talk in a little bit more depth about why these, you know, non-natural, you know, bandwidths kind of seem to exacerbate the issue a bit more. Is it the asymmetry specifically 
or is it the fact that it's, you know, 300 megabits, which doesn't line up with a hundred meg interface or, a, or, you know, a gigabit interface, which, which part of it is it that really, really drives that issue? Oh, okay. There's about seven things there. Um, so let me just talk with the physical line problem. This started with DSL and cable. I started an ISP in the early 90s, and back then the cable company just wanted enough back-channel bandwidth for a buy button. Okay. And it was then noticed that a typical TCP had, for just downloads, you actually had to have X amount of uh, roughly 115th to 120th the amount of uplink bandwidth for a TCP connection to work at all. So people were kind then they said ah well five to one or 20 to one somewhere a good range for us let's design networks that just work that way because consumers just consume they they never do video conferencing or upload anything they just just it's a big fat buy button sorry for the cynicism um however there are some severe the interesting technical advantages to designing an asymmetric network like that. Your cable plant at the head end can be really sophisticated and the one at the, t at the other end can be really cheap uh, or cheaper, I should say. Uh, if you use more signal at the head end, you can manage it better than you can do at the tail end. So this asymmetry started getting built deeply into DSL networks uh, in particular early on and then later on cable modems again made some of the same signal to bandwidth trade-offs that, uh, that make this asymmetry persist for most people. Only fiber has got symmetry and most of the fiber companies I'm aware of just gave up on selling asymmetric stuff. They're, they're doing pure gig each way because they realize that the customers don't use the other gig each way and why put any more complicated stuff in the way? It's just you know, is yeah, that on a, on a fiber access network, it's harder to build asymmetry than it is to just give bi-directional traffic. And, and, and in my, you know, in my experience in, in running an ISP in the early broadband days, 21 years ago or whatever, I had random customers who would say, can't you just flip that around? I don't need the downstream. And no, I, I can't do that. I'm sorry. But like that, you know, that was uh, even then you'd have the one off customers like the power users or whatever that they they sort of understood why and they just wanted it flipped because they wanted the upstream. But, you know, for the for the listeners that may not be familiar with the reasoning behind it, I think you sort of touched on it a, a bit ago, but it, it's basically spectrum allocation um, for lack of a you know more simple way to describe it. It has to do with how you allocate the resources that you have along these, you know, along these paths and fiber doesn't have that problem. The worst, the, the, the closest thing you'll see in a fiber access network is, um, you know, pond splitting. So the passive optical network where you're going to split one by 32 or one by 64 or whatever to get, you know, 64 houses on one particular link. Well, that is certainly in the pond case is certainly a place where I would like to see FQCALA being applied as well to get that right, as well as on the ONTs. Um, but by and large, I have some really wonderful fiber plots I could show you uh, what we did on Sonic Fiber. We managed to cut the induced latency on a GPON based network from fiber is good from a buffering perspective. I see anywhere between 60 to 120 milliseconds of buffering on your typical fiber network. That's well within human tolerances. It's way better than seconds. And when you use fiber, all of your bloat shifts to the Wi-Fi, which then becomes seconds. Um, and I worked on fixing Wi-Fi too, which is going to be hard to cover today. Um, 
Anyway, uh, we'll save that one for save that one for a subsequent yeah. podcast. I got a wonderful picture of my first application of cake to fiber. Instead of having latency and jitter in the in the ninety five millisecond range, it actually dropped to below one. It below, dropped one millisecond below idle because somehow we got inside the grant request loop. It dropped from a little over two and a half milliseconds for sparse packets to two milliseconds. It got faster under load than it did otherwise. Yes, it was a neat result. And it really does make fiber just amazingly interactive. It was the first time that I actually thought, I have another project called the Jamaphone. It's really the first time I ever thought that over the internet, I'd be able to get glass-to-glass latency so multiple musicians could sit across town and play with each other. because we could make fiber under load two milliseconds glass to glass plus two milliseconds for audio encoding and video encoding plus a millisecond for there that's five feet that's a band and that was really an exciting day uh, to, to, to know that we could finally make the internet put a band jam together across town um, that's very cool. Uh, that's very very cool. I, f- I feel like I feel like my head is about ready to pop with all of this information. We're, we're coming up on an hour, and yeah. I think we've we've barely scratched the surface of this. Uh, well, we barely got the cake. I guess I, I don't want to say scratch the surface. All this stuff is out there. If you got a junk router, go looking at the OpenWRT compatibility page. Install it. DDWRT. Firewalla, uh, any version of Linux you want, any version of FreeBSD you want, although there is one limitation that's driving me nuts um, in the FreeBSD implementation of FQCuddle. I want to be clear, SQM is also a shaper, if I could, using HTB. Cake is the successor to SQM, which has a much better shaper in it. Um, and also has all kinds of other nifty features that we'll possibly get to next time. But that's also been available in Linux since Linux 4.19, and it's available as a back backport to the X router, Edge Router X in particular. It is also the principal queuing mechanism of the even route series of routers, which are the easiest to configure thing out there. Um, the guy there has been really good. Uh, for us, uh, and I, 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 if you need an off-the-shelf router to give your mom, um, go try out an Evan route and uh, and see if you like it, um, and so on. Eero's got an SQM implementation as well. There's just an enormous list of, of ways to just, oh, wow, I'm having a queuing problem. I'll apply SQM. And that's one of my biggest barriers is that there's so many engineers and networks and families suffering through the COVID crisis with four of them. Dad, can you get off the internet? I'm trying to play my game. You don't have to stop. I literally have someone knocking at my door right now. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's a great point. I mean, this, the, like where we are right now with COVID and work from home and all this stuff, like, I think stuff like this is more important than ever. And, you know, cruddy home networks are now no longer a, you know, oh, well, it's okay if your network kind of stinks. You know, it's your home network. Of course it stinks. Now, no, it's your lifeline. I mean, I work from home full time all the time. Like it's, it's very critical. And I mean, even as we've been on this, you know, our video, you know, will cut in and out and, and drop and, and you won't hear it on the recording, but it's just really interesting to me, like how important this is real world. You know, it's not just a theoretical thing. It's very, very important for people's lives right now. Yeah. I mean, I would be so bold as to call it a utility. I mean, 
it is, it's just as important as having any other thing that you have to have for modern life, I think. I'm curious, how well did I come through today? I'm a half a mile offshore talking to you over an LTE link. So you had very few little jitters uh, in this. There was a couple, but not many. Your video is crystal clear, and that didn't really change, at least for me. So it looks like I'm currently succeeding in my current work for a company I cannot name. So I'm curious, how much time do we have left? Can I leave you with a song? Absolutely. Play us a song. Actually, first first off, we'll, we'll, we'll let you play us out as the outro, but let's give everybody a chance to sort of tell us, tell people where they can find them. Um, Dan, you want to tell us uh, where people can find you on the internet if you uh, uh, if yes, so I, I have a blog that I don't write enough on anymore, coverfire.com. Um, that's probably the easiest place to find me personally. LinkedIn, of course, too. All right. Chris, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CrankyNetMan. You can find me on my blog, slash six four dot tech slash sixty four dot tech. Um, yeah, I, I literally chose all of the letters or characters that you can't say over the air. Um, I've just never heard you spell it out before. <laughs> yeah, slash six four. It's also neglected, and I do not write it enough. And then the Network Collective Slack channel on there all the time. Yep. And I'm Nick Baraglio. I'm on the Network Collective Slack channel, the Brothers Wisp Slack, um, LinkedIn, all the places, forwardingplane.net, Twitter. And uh, Dave, where can people find you if they choose to before uh, you give us the outro song here? I'm such an old fart. You can find me on IRC. Uh, IRC is DTOT. Uh, I don't know why you cool kids need Slack. IRC does all that. Um, um, Slack is IRC. It just has a fancy wrapper and a price tag now. Exactly. I don't know why. Why would you switch? I use it in Emacs. I, I, I can't. Anyway, let's not talk about Slack. Let's not talk. Uh, anyway, I'm best reached via electronic mail, and I can also be found on many of the mailing lists at bufferbloat.net. And I would encourage people to use that old-fashioned communications mechanism because all the wonderful knowledge about Q theory from some of the greats is on that list and Google no longer indexes it for some reason. I don't get it. So look for list at bufferbloat.net and it'll find me there. Do you want an outro song? Yeah, let's play it. All right. So um, this past year was very rough for everybody. And one of the things that I am, a, I'm a big space nut. And um, the thing that really cheered me up was seeing SpaceX succeed in so many launches and so many landings. I, some people cry at weddings. I cry at landings. I wrote this song originally when they were um, when they were crashing their first attempts. And as an engineer, I like a good explosion as much as anybody. But after five or so, I figured that they needed to cheer up to keep going. So I wrote them a cheer up song. And uh, I got the chance to play it all over the place. I love the song. A lot of people love the song. Science fiction people love the song. And then the bastard started succeeding at landing the damn spacecraft, and I had to rewrite the song. You know how hard that is? Gosh, it took me forever to come up with a new version of the song that did that, and then, and then they started landing two at a time, and I changed the song again. Ugh. But anyway, I grew up wanting to be an astronaut, and I read a lot of books, and uh, there's a couple jokes in this song, which maybe you'll get. And I am very curious using the codec we have. I think I've got the right codec set up for this, but I'm pretty sure it won't sound all that good, um, anywhere near as good as what I've been working on. So here it goes. Mm -hmm.
I was a kid growing up. Oops, hold on, let me take off my headphones so I can hear myself. <laughs> I was a kid growing up. Buck Rogers always landed tail first. And yet we've never had a landing on the cool green hills of Earth. I dreamed of O'Neill Colony and living in the stars. And I thought we'd be in the asteroids and moving on to Mars. We tried with gallow wings and other things, and nitrogen tetroxide. And all I dreamed was of a rocket's landing with their engines flaming high. And I was there for Spaceship One's last flights. I saw William the ship to land. And all my dreams restarted then, and I regained the hope for man. We tried shuttling other things, the costs were way too high. All I dreamed was a rocket's landing with her engines flaming high. And I practiced all my landings using Kerbal Space Program as my guide. Smash my bits on autonomous drone ships or crash them on the side. But we just read the instructions laid out before our time. And we're sticking to landings on pad 39. We tried regalo wings and other things, nitrogen tetroxide. All I dreamed was a rocket's landing with her engines flaming high. Everybody, we tried regalo wings and other things, and nitrogen tetroxide. And all I dreamed was a rocket's landing with her engines flaming high. Thank you for tuning in to the Modem Podcast, where yesterday's modems are today's transponders. For more information or to request a topic, please visit modem.show.